Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We will also be giving a sort of grab bag collection of reviews for different movies that came out in May that we saw in May. And we will also be giving our first big box office draft update. this last week or this last two weeks we have our last night in soho trailer and our eternals trailer so what do you think about the last night in soho trailer does it look appealing to you the colors the the way it's filmed the story does that seem all very enticing at all so knowing that's an edgar wright movie Mm -hmm. going in to watch that trailer i don't know what i was expecting but it was certainly not that that's a whole like psychological thriller which i am down for which is not Mm -hmm. what i was expecting so it does pique my interest. Anya Taylor-Joy is in it, which she's been on fire lately, so I'm excited to see her do some more things. So I am excited for it. Don't understand still what it is, what's happening in it, but it has piqued my interest. That's good. It's it's definitely made me more and more interested in the style he's taking and the very specific style he wants to go with. I really like the way he's shaping that. I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward to it. It was in my top three, I believe, when we did our most anticipated movies. And so I'm very excited. I love everything Edgar Wright does. He's one of the few directors where he's made uh, several movies and I've loved every single one. So I'm super stoked for Last Night in Soho. And the trailer looked amazing. So if you haven't caught it, go check it out there. And other than Last Night in Soho, we had our Eternals trailer, which is in my box office draft picks i think it's gonna make a buttload of money it was the first pick i made does it look good to you does it look different than other marvel movies do you think chloe Zhao is taking it in a new direction in any way i believe that she is or at least you can tell in just the cinematography of it like the mm-hmm. shots in the where they're cliffside and you see the sun setting which is really reminiscent of that one shot in nomadland she's apparently a big fan of those types of shots of this guy in the background as people are walking through them and they look beautiful and i'm appreciative of the fact that it's a real sun and a real sky in the background instead of cgi green screen stuff so i definitely appreciate that it certainly looks like one of the most stylistic marvel films we've seen so far so i i'm excited for that as for the story which i mean they didn't talk too much about i mean we already knew the basic premise and they hinted mm-hmm. at that in the trailer. I'm still unsure of if it'll really land. Because it's an ensemble piece, but they're all new characters that we're getting to know. And there's like eight or nine of them. Like how many of the Eternals are there? There's like about eight or nine or yeah. so. There's a lot. So that's a lot to juggle. And we know, I mean... Chloe Zhao with Nomad Land, that was a deep dive on one specific character, which was done mm-hmm. really well. I'm interested to see how she approaches a piece where she has to sort of spread out the attention to many different characters. And again, this is our introduction to them. So 
could I, I mean there's ways that it could fall flat but this is Chloe Zhao so I do have faith that it will be very good and it certainly looks amazing yeah with an ensemble piece you got to watch your pacing because she's known for that sort of slow deep dive into one specific character and have it be a slow burn where you kind of learn more and more about the character through the things they do and just watching them go through their daily lives and you can't really do that for an ensemble piece because at some point you're wasting time you're not getting to the point with the characters and you really got to use that carefully and i think she can balance that and it'll be tricky for her to do but i'm excited for it i think it looks good i think it's gonna make a buttload of money i I, i'm excited you're definitely hoping so for that box office draft Um, yeah all right now this is like a random news segment because these are random pieces of news that I wanted to just throw out there and see what you thought, but I don't know mm-hmm. if they merit a full on discussion. So I'm yeah. going to say them to you and I want you to give your reaction of yay or nay. And you can okay. elaborate if you want to, but just to see your baseline level of, is it something that piques your interest or something you don't really care for? So mm-hmm. Timothy Chalamet recently has been cast as young Willy Wonka. Yay. Yay. Okay. That's because we've seen him. I mean, it was a Super Bowl ad, but he was already young <laughs> or baby Edward Scissorhands. So if he's doing the Johnny Depp version, he can do it. If they're doing a young Willy Wonka and it's original, he can put his own spin on it. The only way it would not be good is if he's trying to do a young version of Gene Wilder's character, which he can't pull off. But I think he already knows that. I, I doubt they're going to go in that direction. And so it's a yay for me. Okay. The Rock as Crypto, the super dog. Nay. Nay. How come? It's not the right voice. Not the right voice. Does not, does not work for me. His Did you like his voice acting in Moana? Yeah. Yeah, he's great. You just don't see him as a crypto? No. Okay. Not at all. A share biopic. Yeah, I'll go with yay, just because biopics are always fun. They're always hit or miss for me, and I like Cher, so it's worth a shot. And if it's bad, it's bad. You know, I don't care, but sure. The Joker sequel. They're recently saying that Todd Phillips is currently co-writing it. I think that's still speculation for now, but there is buzz about a Joker sequel in the works. So yay or nay? That is a nay for me. A nay? How come? Yeah, you know I didn't like the first Joker. You know my feelings on that. Uh, I think I've talked about it on here a little bit. That is one of our lost tape episodes, I think. That one yeah, I, I am not a big fan of the first movie, and I don't think a sequel is going to make it any better. I don't think a sequel is going to add anything new. So it's an A for me, because you're not you're not developing the world anymore. You're not gonna really develop the character anymore you're just gonna show him as the joker which could be fun but at some point it's just him being the joker and just doing joker things for two hours which is not really the story they want to tell i can tell you that much they want to do something deeper with it and i don't know how much deeper you can go past an origin story for a character that is just chaos true true and our last yay or nay we have another (laughs) update on the knives out Two hollywood roundup where everyone and their mother's getting cast we have Kate Hudson mm-hmm. and Leslie Odom Jr. Um, I'm going to go with Nay on Kate Hudson, just because I'm not the biggest fan. I haven't seen her really do anything that I really loved. But yay on Leslie Odom Jr. Because I love Leslie Odom Jr. Love her. Beautiful. Okay. And our final bit of news, 
which is a massive one. Amazon has purchased MGM Studios for a price tag of $8 billion. Damn. And so that means... That's a huge price tag. It is. So that means they now have the idea of James Bond, Rocky movies, Robocop, Doom Raider, The Handmaid's Tale, Legally Blonde, Pink Panther, and some more, as well as all the classic MGM movies, everything they have in their catalog, that all now goes to Amazon. Yeah, James Bond is the big one now. That's the franchise they're trying to grab. Yeah. Because now they can just put out massive amounts of James Bond content. They could do spinoffs if they wanted to. Amazon could go create. They could do a miniseries or a series about James Bond. They could go wild with it. They got to cast someone new because Daniel Craig is out. That's true. So it'll be Amazon who will be spearheading that new James Bond once Daniel Craig finishes his movie, No Time to Die, which they have said that they're going to keep in theaters, which is very good for me. So, yeah, that will still yeah. be one of the movies in my roster for the box office draft. And now we've got our box office breakdown for the Memorial Day weekend, May 28th to the 30th. At our top spot is A Quiet Place 2. It made $47.4 million in that opening. Its full four-day opening was $57 million, and that is the biggest opening in the pandemic era. John Krasinski has done it again. He has exceeded expectations, and he has killed killed the Quiet Place opening, the original one. The domestic opening was only $50 million. So the full weekend was just shy of that, but if you look at the full four day, he exceeded it. So good for him. I know, which again, Big it is impressive that this happens in the pandemic. So there are still people mm-hmm. certainly that are staying home that probably would have gone to see it otherwise if it wasn't a pandemic. So the fact that mm-hmm. it's got 47 million just legitimately in the three days and then in the four days was able to pass the original opening of The Quiet Place shows that this property, this new franchise that john krasinski has spawned is certain certainly beloved and it's critically acclaimed as well i mean it's getting a lot of good buzz so it's good good for him good for emily blunt you love to hear it yeah in second we have cruella made 21.3 million which is more than i thought it would make considering (laughs) it's also on disney plus and it's cruella but its full four-day opening was 26.5 million and that is just above Demon Slayer's opening and slightly below Mortal Kombat. So good for Cruella. Made some money there while fighting with A Quiet Place 2. I'm I'm relatively impressed. Yep. That the three-day, the 21 million, was just above Demon Slayer and slightly below Mortal Kombat. But then, mm-hmm. yeah, when you factor in the four-day, that becomes technically, I think, the third biggest pandemic opening mm-hmm. uh, since it would be behind the 30 million opening that Godzilla versus Kong had. So again, that is impressive for Emma Stone and all them since it was on Disney Plus. And I'm not too sure how the buzz has been about it. Like I think it's negative. Fairly okay in from the critics, but yeah. <laughs> Apparently you were already not a fan of it. I've seen some fairly negative reviews. Is Alexa gonna see it? If she wants to. I doubt it. I doubt it. Dang. Can't even She still wants to see um What's the what's the one that Ray and the Last Dragon? So I haven't seen it because it's not on uh, Disney Plus for free quite yet. I think it comes out on free for free in June, and that's what we can watch it in June. Interesting, because they yes. are still running it up at the box office. Yeah. It's in our fifth spot with two point one million, 
Um, so that's just behind Wrath of Man with also 2.1 and Spiral with 2.2. But mm-hmm. Ryan the Last Dragon is the only film here that had an increase. It had a 25% increase from last weekend. And remember, this is his 13th week. So that's yeah, that's insane. rare. Yeah, that never happens. It's very impressive. I wonder what caused that sort of uptick. Was there maybe nothing else people wanted to see? It's the only kids movie out there except maybe Cruella, but people want to see animated. Right. There's, it, I'm sure that is part of it. And then there was also Disney and Cinemark, the theater chain, mm-hmm. were beefing earlier in the year. And so Raya wasn't in any Cinemark theaters. And then a couple weeks yeah. ago, a couple weeks ago, they made a deal, and so they did get Cinemark theaters. So that opened up like six hundred additional screens that uh, can play on. That'll do. So it. that's why it's been, yeah, able to stay up in the pack recently. But even then, I mean, that was a couple weeks ago. So this increase, I guess, was just yeah, the families wanted to go out on the holiday weekend and see some nice family affair. That's nice. After Ray and the Last Dragon is Godzilla vs. Kong, it made less than a million in its ninth week. And then after that, Demon Slayer, also less than a million. It's That is the second highest grossing anime movie domestically. Good for Demon Slayer. It's incredible. If you haven't seen it yet, you can catch up on the one season that's out there so far. It's all on Netflix. And then you can go to the theater and watch the movie because it is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal. Phenomenal. Incredible. Incredible. Phenomenal. All right. It is now time to go to our first box office draft update. I wish we could get the actual NFL theme song. If only we had the rights. For real. All right. So the first movie that we were going to discuss was what I think your second pick, Dylan. Yeah, I think so too. It is F9, the newest Fast and Furious movie, which domestically doesn't come out until later on in June. Mm -hmm. But it made its overseas debut last weekend. It's not this most recent one, but last weekend. And it made across all territories 162 million and specifically in china it made 137 million that is disappointing to me that is very disappointing that it, well and it's a mixed bag because it is certainly for a hollywood movie overseas that's one of the biggest openings we've mm-hmm. seen since the pandemic began but just to comparatively yeah contextualize it Here's what some other related movies have made. So Godzilla vs. Kong had a $123 million overseas opening, and only $69 million of that was accrued uh, in China. So F9 fared better than Godzilla vs. Kong, and right now Godzilla vs. Mm-hmm. Kong is over $400 million. So that's at least a good sign that you're probably going to make it over yeah, $400 million. Yeah. Um, but... The Fate of the Furious, the most recent mainline Fast and Furious film, got a whopping $433 million international opening, and $184 million of that was in China. Mm-hmm. So that speaks to a couple things. I mean, Fate of the Furious just seemed like a massive event. Like, I'm almost confident, and that was 
before Endgame happened. So I think mm-hmm. that film set the record for the biggest opening of all time. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, worldwide. So The problem that I'm seeing here is that you see that there is a drop in China from 184 million debut to F9's debut of 137 million. That is a drop, but it's not a crazy drop. That is a reasonable COVID drop. But the full 162 million opening versus the 432 million, 433 million international opening for Fate of the Furious means that not a lot of other places other than China internationally are showing this movie. Not a lot of people are turning up to see it. And that could hurt me pretty bad in this competition because china is a big player but it's not the only player internationally and if other countries aren't pulling their weight it could pull me down which is bad that is i'm hoping there will be a big push when it releases later this month in america i'm hoping that that will help get it up over the 500 million mark heading towards at least the hobbs and shaw bench line which was 760 worldwide final gross hoping i can hit at least that and if i can it might be able to save me Hobbs and Shaw, for example, had a 120 million international debut, which is less than what F9's debut was. And it only had 94 million opening in China, which is also less than what F9 was. So I could see it possibly hitting 760 worldwide. That, That could be the benchmark I can see it at. I'm guessing somewhere between, I'm assuming above 500 is probably certain at this point. And hopefully more than 760. That is my hope. The closer I can get to a billion, the more impressive this will be, of course. Right. But I don't think it will get to the 1.2 billion final tally that Fate of the Furious had, which is a huge bummer. Big disappointment. This could have been, if it had had the kind of opening that Fate of the Furious had been, this would have been a great way to launch my catalog of films. You would have been intimidated. <laughs> I would have been confident. It would have been incredible. But the 137 or the 162 million opening that I've been given here is definitely disappointing in the context of the previous films in this franchise. Hopefully it will pick up later this month when it releases domestically. And I've got a couple more movies tucked away that'll hopefully help bring up the total. That's true. And there are other territories, like a lot of Europe, I think is also opening in June, like later this month. And there are some in July. So it hasn't hit every single overseas territory yet, so that mm-hmm. um, I do believe that is having a partial effect on the 162 million opening. I believe Fate of the Furious, like that opened everywhere at the same time. That's mm-hmm. why I was able to get such a massive huge bump um, yeah. in one go. But you do still have to factor in the COVID element. China right now isn't really affected by COVID. I mean, they are... I mean, you see some of the films that they're grossing, like Hi Mom, which released earlier this month, uh, this year, has something like 800 million. So they're perfectly fine. But other territories, like those in Europe, like us here at home, there may still be that element of are all the theaters up at full capacity? Are people comfortable going? So that is still going to affect the uh, launch of F9 here. And you also have to consider the Fast and Furious franchise is mostly like most of their grosses come from overseas. Yeah. So that is also another <laughs> for you is not it's trouble. Yeah. Say good things about the mm-hmm. upcoming domestic launch. So we will see how that goes. 
As for the second weekend overseas, not good news either. It grossed 20 million or thereabouts in China. So that's an 84% uh, drop. Yeah, that's bad. But let me let me cushion your <laughs> disappointment real quick. So it's probably uh, a result of China being heavily front-loaded. That happens mm-hmm. a lot. They, for instance, other Fast and Furious films dropped about 70% in their second weekend. So this isn't mm-hmm. that far off from it. It's also not the worst drop. I think Wonder Woman 84 had 92% in its second weekend. It had that drop off. Damn. So it's not the worst we've ever seen, but it is very significant, a very pronounced drop-off. Um, and it could be because of the lackluster reviews that it's getting. It's not as well-received as some of the previous films. Um, mm-hmm. And there also could be a John Cena controversy at play. Did you hear about that? I have not heard about that. was the John Cena controversy. He made the unforgivable mistake of calling the independent, democratically run nation of Taiwan, a country. And China is not about that, since uh, they still, like the government still wants to say Taiwan is part of their country, even though it is most definitely not. Um, the classic blunder. <laughs> so, Come on, John. So John Cena said that. He was like, yeah, Taiwan's going to be the first country to see this. And then everyone was mad at him. And so he did an amazing thing, which was making everyone mad while not fixing anything. So he issued a an apology on the chinese equivalent of twitter in mandarin no less uh and he was like i made a mistake i apologize i love china i love the chinese people but he never said that taiwan wasn't a country like he never actually said like took that back um Mm. but he did still apologize to china for saying that he was like i made a mistake so he got mad or people got mad at him here in the west because we were like wow you were bending over for china and then trying to come back because they were like, wow, you didn't actually take back what you said. So no one was yeah, happy. Yeah, throw that out there. You got to pick a side. Yeah, so. <laughs> you can't tell the line. <laughs> so. Come on, John. The classic blunder. Yeah, I don't think there was too much. Like, that didn't affect too much of their drop off. I don't think people were boycotting it then. Um, and I'm hoping <laughs> that controversy won't get brought up again when it's time for F9 to release in the states yeah you and me both so yeah because i like john cena and i don't want him to get hated on but that was also such a foolish thing for him to do yeah um, i really like winning the idea of winning this competition so i hope he'll come back <laughs> well so i think even despite even without a john cena boycott it may mm-hmm. not be entirely good news for you when it does open in the states yeah right now it's I mean, again, it's not like a massive failure. It's fairly no, on no. par for what we'd expect in a COVID version. But as we saw, it is not going to reach the heights of Fate of the Furious. Um, and we'll have to see if it even manages to crack what Hobbs and Shaw got, which again was $760 million worldwide. So, yeah. So I think I might be able to cross that. Cross my fingers. We'll see. We have some box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. Uh, we have a new entry into the catalog of films coming out recently. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Do you think that that will usurp A Quiet Place too? That's a good question. I don't think so. I don't. It's. I also don't think so. It's coming out on HBO Max as well. It's one of those dual releases. And this is, I mean, it says The Conjuring 
but it's like a spinoff type deal. I don't know mm. if any of the people behind the scenes, like the filmmakers of the previous Conjurings, are attached to this one. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if it's getting a lot of buzz for that reason. So I think it won't take the top spot away from A Quiet Place 2. I think it may get around $15 million just because it is a sequel of a well-known franchise. Horrors yeah. um, tend to... I mean, it always They're hit or miss. that. Well, yeah, they are hit or miss, but people, I mean, do go out and see them. So if this one happens to be well-liked, I think that could also drive some people to the theaters for it. But again, mm-hmm. it is on HBO Max, so it's not going to do crazy numbers, I don't yeah. think. I'm going with around $15 million. I could see it doing around 15 to 20 million. I'll go over. I'll, I'll say 16 at the least so that we can have some competition in this. But I do think A Quiet Place 2 will still be out. Of course, it's going to be a drop. It's the second weekend it's been out. It already made 57 million in that four day opening. Uh, I think it'll probably drop to around a little over 40 million, if not in the high 30s. I think it'll drop. I don't think it'll be significant. So I don't think The Conjuring can reach that. I don't think it can reach it and then exceed it. I think that's highly unrealistic. So my list for the next week is probably A Quiet Place 2, Conjuring, and then Cruella, and then all the dregs of the <laughs> eight, nine-week things that are still have, like hanging around Spiral and, and Wrath of Man and all that stuff. It's just jumbled up because of different things people want to see, maybe. Right. So That's my prediction. So you're saying thir- high 30s? Low forties for a quiet place too. Second weekend, I think it can. I think it can hold. That'd on. be an incredible hold if it did. Yeah, I'm. I think it can do it. I'm not. Of all the things we've seen, go ahead. Just of all the things we've seen, I think I think a quiet place too could hold off. Right. That sort of a hold. So far, people love a quiet place too. People love John Krasinski. People love Emily Blunt. They love the idea of it, and that's like a 40 percent drop. So I think they can hold on to that. Yeah, 20, 30, 40%. I mean, I agree with all those things you said about why it probably will have a good hold, but I don't think it'll have that good a hold. So I'll say mm-hmm. mid to high 20 mil for okay. A Quiet Place 2. And then for Cruella, I think it'll maybe it'll be right around double digits, like around the 10 mil mark. I'm thinking around eight or nine. I think it'll have a steep. That's probably most more likely. Like it'll fall just yeah. below the double digit mark, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I agree. It'll go A Quiet Place to Conjuring Cruella. All right. Now we have our main subject. We're doing a grab bag reviews of things we've seen from May. So we're going to start off with the Friends Reunion. It came out on May 27th on HBO Max, which is my brother's birthday, actually. So I had to watch it a day later on the 28th. Uh, it brought all six main cast members, Lisa Kudrow, Courtney Cox, Jennifer Aniston, David Schwimmer, Matt LeBlanc, and Matthew Perry. They all came back for an unscripted interview slash roundtable special where they were sort of did a lot of different things. They walked around the old set that they rebuilt. They reminisced. They had little games that they played. They brought back other other actors that were on the show. They reread some scripts and they did some weird stuff with James Corden. What do you what do you think about it? Because you and I have different opinions. I mean, I liked it. We can talk about I mean, I don't think either of us are the biggest fan of James Corden. But you were saying they did weird stuff with James Corden. It was just an interview. You just asked them basic questions. I don't know why you're saying it was weird. 
if he just felt like the part where they were like, let's have people in the audience ask her questions. And James Corden does the thing where he looks around as if he doesn't know where the person is. Right. And then he goes, Oh, look, we got someone over there. <laughs> and then he like points them out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that always feels just fake and inorganic. So, but that's but nothing made that we worse. haven't seen before. I mean, we always expect that when it's an interview type of show and I mean, you know, it's James Corden saying so he was going to do that stuff. So for me, I it was tolerable. I mean, I could handle it because I was more focused on the six people that I'm here to see. So it didn't detract from that experience too much. I, again, overall enjoyed it. I loved, in particular, I think we both agree with this, This the moments when it's just them sitting around together and talking and reminiscing or when they were watching the bloopers or particular scenes the Ross and Rachel kiss, seeing their reactions to it and them um, mm-hmm. like getting taken back to those days, that was the highlight for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's always fun to just watch the six of them in a room reminiscing. Like if it had been two hours of that, I would have had a very fun time. But my problem with the James Corden segments isn't that it's an interview. It's that it feels like a late night interview where it's like very segmented, very like play games, like do bits, and it's not really deep. There was one deep moment where David Schwimmer and Jennifer Anderson talk about their flirtations, and then they just cut away from that. They just move on. And it's like you could spend two hours. If James Corden was like a real interviewer, he could have spent two hours, and it could have just been James Corden and just the six of them in a room, and he's just asking them the questions and just creating a dialogue. And I would have watched that whole thing and been very invested. Or... It could have been just the six of them, no James Corden, just in on the set, walking around and just reminiscing for two hours. And I would have liked that more, too. It just felt like they're appealing to this sort of late night kind of television, which makes sense because it's directed by the guy who produces James Corden's show. So, of course, that's it's what they know. But it just would have been more enjoyable to have it be more of an intellectual dive into their experience on that show what it was like get really deep in the nitty-gritty parts of like what it was like to make the biggest show of all time and to be a part of that and to be one of the six main cast of like the most famous people they're like the beatles of television and to like do a deep dive on that would have been so interesting but it was just like let's get together and play games and then have (laughs) clips of us sort of reminiscing and look here's matthew perry and matt leblanc and they're reclining in the chairs like like in the show and it's like, okay, let them talk. Let them, let's watch. Cause there's no way they were probably there on that set for like four or five hours just talking. And we haven't seen most of that. And there's no way they weren't filming for parts of it. They filmed all of it and then they just picked the pieces they liked. But if it, like, they could have filmed all of that. I would have watched five hours of that. I would have watched the whole thing they'll, front to back of them just walking around. They'll release the Snyder cut of the Friends reunion soon. Oh, uh, dude, I really hours. hope so. God. Um, I mean, be so much more interesting. Yeah, I don't disagree with your point there. Of it would have been nice to just get a really long form, uninterrupted look at them all just talking with each other, and again going into that, like you said, deep dive of the experience of being part of the biggest show of all time. And they touched on it at parts, like they did the behind the scenes thing of the casting process and how they got each of the six, which I enjoyed. They also had segments where they had people from around the world pitch in on the impact that friends the show had on them so mm-hmm. we do get to see 
how it was such a phenomenon. So like those portions I liked, and again, they did have to splice them in a certain way to make it sort of commercialized, to make it attention grabbing as if it were a late night show. So that can be partially frustrating, but I think for the most part, I mean, I was just happy to see them all together. I was smiling a lot throughout. So it was a good time for me. I mean, I had fun, sure, but it just was not what I would consider to be interesting. (laughs) I would not consider it interesting. You had fun, but not interesting. Yeah. Right. So what would you, I mean, it's weird to rate an unscripted special, but what would you rate it out of five? Three and a half. Three and a half. Uh, what should I, there's so many things to pick from friends. What should I say? Um, there's so many things. <laughs> what should I pick? Three and a half monkeys out of five, I guess. Monkeys. That's kind of boring. <laughs> the one season half. monkey that yeah. everyone hated. Um, I will give it four Regina Phalanges out of five. There you go. <laughs> floopies. Yeah, floopies. Um, that was pretty funny. I think it's hilarious that Lisa Goudreau doesn't really like the character Phoebe or doesn't think she is like Phoebe. But then the whole fly thing happened and it seemed like that's how Phoebe would react. She yeah, sure, but, but not really. I, I understand. Like, I wanted to hear more about that. Like, their, their disagreements with being perceived as the character because a lot of times on shows like these, what makes the character so convincing is that the writers will incorporate things from the actors. Like, I know on How I Met Your Mother, the writers took a lot of Josh Radner and put that in Ted. And so I know Josh Radner really doesn't like talking about the show anymore because people would be like, oh, you're Ted. Look at that. He's doing Ted things in real life. And he's like, no, that's me, you know? And I can, I can see that being really frustrating to be to play this character for so long and want to go on and do other things, but you can't because your own personality has been put into that character, so they become interchangeable in the zeitgeist, which is unfortunate. And I would like to do more of a deep dive on how they perceive that because certainly the six of them their careers, it's been hard for them to sort of recover a lot of them after that. Uh, Matt LeBlanc had some success with episodes. He won a Golden Globe and an, an Emmy. Uh, Jennifer Aniston's doing good. David Schwimmer was great in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Courtney Cox had Cougar Town. Lisa Kudrow has Web Therapy and another HBO show, I think. And Matthew Perry had a couple of sitcoms that he did. But for the most part, they, it's been hard for them to shake off the friends, like who they were on Friends. Jennifer Aniston's probably done the best job of it. But it's still a hard thing to shake off with them. Right. And I would love to hear them talk about how that has affected their careers and what they think about it. Like they did a little bit of a mention of it, but I would have loved to hear their full unfiltered opinion on this. I agree. Hopefully they'll, I don't know, maybe there is an uncut version of it out there somewhere. Or maybe there will be a time where they're able to come back together and do more of that. Not a big event like, oh, the Friends reunion but a more laid back, as you said, intellectual, just deep dive on their experiences instead of trying to make references to the shows and bring out the inside jokes, just talking about them, the people behind the characters and their Mm -hmm. perspective on it um, and how they reflect on the whole thing. That I would like to see. Um, And hopefully they do do it. Because Courtney Cox, towards the end, she was like, we're never going to do this again. The six of us aren't going to come back together and get asked about friends, which I was like, 
maybe not the six you, but I don't think they're ever going to escape <laughs> the questioning about friends. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. You know, I want them to be able to go on and do other things and be asked questions about those and not just friends, you know, but it is what it is when you're, that's, that's the biggest thing you've ever done. I mean, the, the Beatles, you know, they've all done stuff on their own, but at the end of the day, they always get asked, you know, what was it like being in the Beatles? I mean, that's true. What was it like being one of the Beatles, you know? It's a blessing and a curse. It speaks to how yes. phenomenal and impactful the first thing you did was. So, yeah, still leaves a, a lot of people are impacted by it and they want to ask about it whenever they can. But it does become frustrating mm-hmm. at a point to be defined by it. So, yeah. hopefully this will give them some closure on it. I will say the one part I did like is the kind of documentary style approach they took to like discussing how they picked the actors and like that casting process. And it was just the creators talking about it. I thought that was a little interesting how they went. They showed like footage of the stuff that they were working on at the time, what appealed to them about those actors specifically and how they sort of were able to convince them to leave whatever shows they were on to come work on Friends. I thought that was interesting. (laughs) And you could have even done two hours of that where it was just more of a documentary than uh, a James Corden interview. But it was still, dude. that was probably the better part. The Matthew Perry, the show he was on, LAX 2192 or something stupid. I cannot believe that he accepted a role on that show. That's hilarious. I mean, you got to do whatever you can. Imagine being (laughs) the producer. He was like, yeah, you can just take him. <laughs> that was hilarious. Like, like he's like, look at the show; it's all yours. <laughs> they do. They show the clip of him, and he's being sarcastic with the guy dressed up as an alien, and it's just like, wow, <laughs> this looks like a this looks like a Saturday Night Live sketch, not its own show. For real, and that was that was surreal to see. But anyway, yeah. yep, the Friends reunion it finally happened after a year. It was postponed by the pandemic, but it finally came back around. You can also listen to our thoughts on Friends in our earlier episode, the one where they talk about sitcoms. We talk about what The Office and Community as well. Mm -hmm. But we also do a deep dive on Friends because that was when I had just finished watching it for the first time. And it is a great show. It's a great show. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about sitcoms and what they are and how each one sort of fits into that definition of a sitcom. And which one we like the most and why. And the parts that we do like, the parts that we don't like. It's a really good deep dive into these three specific sitcoms. So if you want to go and you want to listen to that, it's on everywhere we put out our shows. Spotify, Deezer, it's on our website. You can just go to Instagram, our Instagram, and then follow us. And then go through our link to our website. And it'll show you everywhere you can listen to it too. It's a good show. Now next in our May grab bag reviews is Army of the Dead. Now I have not seen Army of the Dead. And I most likely won't, but if I do, I don't care if it's spoiled. So, Ryan, I want you to pop off about everything, spoil everything, tell me everything you liked about it, everything you didn't like about it. Go off. All right. So, my approach to this will not be to analyze it critically, because that would be far too, far too much credit to Army of the Dead to imply that there is something to analyze here. It is so stupid. It is just incredibly dumb, <laughs> which uh, Zack Snyder built up all that good faith with the Snyder, Snyder cut, cut, and I wanted to see him do something well with this, yeah. but uh, it was just mind-numbingly stupid, and he was all over the film, too. He wrote, directed, he was the 
a DP on it as well. I think he also produced it. I wouldn't be surprised if he edited it, but I think that might be Use the DP? Yes. My man. Is that why I look, kind of looked bad? Maybe, I guess. I mean, he executed whatever vision he had for sure. The problem is that vision was gross. Bad. <laughs> so, I mean, the premise, I will give it to them, is fun. They said, what if we take a heist film and we take a zombie film, we put it in Vegas and we have at it. That sounds like a fun premise. And yeah. I mean, it still is. It's good. But the way that they went about it, I mean, it's supposed to be in Vegas, right? I mean, the city that doesn't sleep and all that. And the color yeah. palette of this film is, I mean, it's Snyder. So it's so gray, devoid of color, yeah. desaturated. And in the marketing, they have like all these poppy Big, colors. Big, yeah, colors, pink. yeah. And that is hardly anywhere in the actual film, which I don't know why they did that. Maybe Netflix was like, hey, let's attract these people, make them think it will be a bright, fun film. Was it really like a bunch was, of gray tones or was it like muted colors? It was a lot of gray tones. Damn, because muted colors would have been interesting. That's like you take this bright city and you make it something dark. And it's just like these kind of muted colors. Or you could have just gone full bright and have it be like ironic sort of. We're getting too deep into this. It's That's not, right. It's, That's right. Not, we can't there's not this much thought process into it. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm saying. Go, keep going. So keep going. He didn't put that much thought into I it. I just threw a bunch of, well, and again, Zack Snyder, his thought process is what would be cool? Oh, this would be cool. And then he does it. Yeah. And I can respect that. And I can respect people yeah. who go into this movie knowing. It worked in the Snyder cut. Yeah. But again, there was like, there was deeper themes there. There was. That is more true. to the characters there. In this case, it was not. It was literally just him or the 14-year-old hidden within him, the 14-year-old boy who was like, this would be so cool if... Have you seen Have you seen Sucker Punch? I have not. I w Spencer has played a couple of clips because he likes to go back and revisit it, but it is the, it is the worst movie. <laughs> it is... It is like a 14-year-old was given an $80 million budget to make whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> and he just, like, went crazy with it. There's huge, there's, like, these big samurai characters fighting, like, these women and stuff. And uh, Oscar Isaac in it, and he's, like, a crazy psychiatrist or something. It is, and then they, like, go to World War II. It's so, so bizarre. Like, just the thing, and it is genuinely, this is cool. Puts it in. That's exactly what his that thought is, process yes. was in that movie. <laughs> that was Zack Snyder at peak Zack Snyder going fully out with everything he wanted to do and just not even not even think about it. Just, I want to do something cool. I think samurais and women in low-cut shirts and World <laughs> War II and crazy psychiatrists are cool. Let's smack them all together and let's give the people what they want. And then the people said, we don't want this and then gave it back to him. <laughs> God, it's crazy. Yeah, like I mean, respect the I respect the the stylism of it and the commitment to doing what you want to do, but we don't want you to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Again, there is something about it where I mean, you're never going to confuse a Snyder film with some other filmmaker. So yeah. again, I mean, kudos to him for having a he stands such out. distinctive style. But half the time, <laughs> it's so stupid. So the beginning montage, the like credit montage, they had some song or a cover of the big Vegas song and they had zombie Elvis. And I mean, that was kind of cool. He saw the backstory of some of the characters, which I didn't really understand. But then he also used it as an excuse to have like the showgirls turned into zombies. So there's just 
some dude getting mauled by zombies with their tits out. Which again was him saying that would be cool. And so he did it. And then he put the title card of the movie over that scene. That's where he said, nice. That speaks to the core of this film. Put the title there. Um, so yeah, that. With the zombies with their tits <laughs> <Yes>. out. <laughs> so there's that. Um, then there, again, there are some cool elements, which, I mean, yes, I can agree. There are things like a zombie tiger, zombie kingdom, where they have this whole hierarchy where there's alphas and there's shamblers, which are the stupid zombies that are fast. And you have alphas that are intelligent. Um, so those things, I'm like, okay. Okay, Snyder, you got me. But then he does other things that just make no sense, have no logic behind them. The whole point of the film is Batista gathers this group of people to go into Vegas, zombie-infested Vegas, because they walled it off. So that's where the outbreak is concentrated. And this dude named Tanaka, who owns a casino, is like, guys, there's $200 million in a vault. I need you to go get it. It's his vault. And they didn't, he didn't give the code over. And I think they explained it away in some stupid way. But literally, they said, you need to go break into the vault that I own underneath my casino to retrieve my money. And Batista and all of them were like, okay. So then they go get some safe cracker dude who's some like, I don't know if he was Danish or something like that. Um, but he was supposed to be this quirky character. I was not a fan of him at all. But he's also getting a spinoff or something. Oh my Which god! Makes no sense. I don't know. Netflix really said, "All right, we're if we're gonna bring Snyder on, we're going all in." So they're gonna keep all the Snyder fans at Netflix. I think. Um, again, some more things that were kind of well, the zombie armor was cool, right? That's intelligent. They know their heads are how they die. So one of the alphas mm. wears armor on their head. And then he takes it off later for no reason. <laughs> so he can, oh. um, so you can see his face. Right. <laughs> so the camera can see his face. Well, it's not even an actor. It's like a behind, it's like a stunt dude who plays the big main alpha. Um, yeah, but you know, he's the villain. You got to see his I face. Guess. There's the, there's a zombie baby, which I didn't even see that scene. <laughs> this is how you know it wasn't good. I was just looking at my phone at that portion. <laughs> and it was like the midpoint <laughs> of the film where you find out that one of the, Alphas they killed was pregnant. So I didn't even see that. There's cyborg zombies for no reason. Oh. They don't even explain it. There's just some zombies that have glowing eyes, which I'm imagining. What? Yes. <laughs> so is that, that's the only thing that makes them cyborgs. They have eyes that glow. Well, and then you shoot, they shot one of them and then it had like electricity, like shoot out or something like wires popping out. What? That's what I'm saying. So I was like, well, that's just, I think, setting up for a sequel or some other project. Maybe we'll see that in the, the prequel. That is that, is that like a cliffhanger? Fuck. Cyborg zombies. And they just cuts to the next movie. Yeah, I don't know, man. So the cast of characters they had, I mean, they at least were all mildly uh, distinctive. But none of them were particularly crazy interesting. Zig Nataro... Uh, was entirely included with CGI, which what? was impressive. Well, because I think Chris D'Elia was supposed to be that character, and then he got the allegations thrown at him, so they said, let's kick him out, but how can we <laughs> make sure we don't reshoot everything? So they CGI'd Tignotaro into certain scenes when she... Does it look good? It does. It honestly does. That's cool. Which makes That's the cool. whole mustache superman thing even more 
insanely <laughs> absurd. Um, cause yeah, it was pretty seamless in this. Like if you didn't know, I don't think you'd be able to tell. Um, yeah. so that was, that was interesting. And there are some cool deaths. There was one really brutal one where Batista is talking with the love interest. And then, I mean, it was stupid because again, they just stood there while that happened, but the elevator comes down, the zombie rushes out, grabs her neck and twists it so that like an owl, she turns around. So her body's facing forward, but then her head's yeah. backwards looking at Batista. And I was like, Damn. Jesus, that is so... I mean, that was brutal. Um, so that was pretty cool. But then there were also stupid deaths. There's one moment where this... One of the dudes is like an inside guy with Tanaka. His... Which again, that plot line made no sense. I'll get to that in a second. But he tried to get this other chick killed because she was onto him. Like she just didn't trust him. And so they're walking through these zombies that are hibernating. <laughs> they're just standing still in some kitchen space. And mm-hmm. so he throws a glow stick, which is how they're supposed to like be following each other, know where to go. He throws it into a pack of the zombies so that she goes over there. And then it's two close quarters. So she bumps into a zombie and they awake. Um, they wake up. So then she's getting taken down by them. She runs for help, but he locks the door on her. So mm-hmm. like, oh dang, she's killed. I think I've seen this clip. I think I saw Spencer watch this part. Is this the one clip. where? Is this the one where the dude? She's like getting attacked by the zombies, and he shoots the gas yes, on her back yes. to blow them all up. Okay, I've seen this. Yeah, it was kind of stupid. She busts through the window, and she's literally eight feet away from them. She's right there. They had she's guns. Right they could have shot around, and she's like fighting half the time too. And they're like, leave her. She's too far gone. It's like you could reach out to her. She's right there. And she didn't even scream, hey, this dude tried to kill me, which she could have. Yeah, she, she just, just says, run. Yeah, she's like, go. And then get shot with slow-mo. Got to get that Snyder slow-mo, which there wasn't too much, to be honest, in this one. But they did mm. have the slow-mo for the gas tank. Um, yeah, I remember so, that. So, again, I guess it was, quote, cool. But it made no sense. Um, but the coolness had to prevail in Snyder's mind. Sean Spicer is in this movie for no reason. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and it happens very early. And it's, again, it's for no reason. He's. It also doesn't make sense because he's clearly, like, from the point of view of what a Trump administration official would be saying about this situation. Because they try to mm-hmm. do this whole subplot of the, the Vegas, people who lived in Vegas are now quarantined in the like refugee camp outside of Vegas and their plan is to nuke Vegas to kill <laughs> to kill the zombies and so some people are like guys why are we holding american citizens in this camp why can't they leave we're just going to nuke them um yeah and they're like they're going to get nuked soon we need to get them out and also they're not infected or they'd already be zombies there's no reason to have them in this camp and Sean Spires is taking the perspective of like dude we do nuclear tests in Nevada all the time. They'll be fine. <laughs> so he's like playing the perspective of is he a derailed official, government official. But that's like, why did he accept to this role? Because that's just making I have fun a couple of who of he questions. was. I have a couple of questions about this. Is he playing himself? Not really. Like they don't say Sean Spicer, but. Okay, okay. Is he like on a TV screen or is he in the actual? He scene? is on a TV screen. It's like them watching the news and there's like a okay, news debate. Okay. 
if Sean Spicer showed up in like an actual scene and had no. to actually act, that'd be crazy. But they just had him go on a well, TV. Well, yeah, he's playing his role something. as like a talking head from the government who's okay. arguing one side of this issue. Um, That's not the craziest thing, though. If if he had, because there's like you remember that thing in uh, in Mission Impossible Fallout oh, in yeah. the very beginning with Wolf Blitzer, <laughs> and Wolf Blitzer is actually just in it. That's like, it's just so I weird. love that stuff though. I love when they get the real anchors to read the new stuff. But this one makes no sense because again, it's making fun of him being like from the administration that's talking nonsense about some stupid policy decision. Like they're making fun of him being the press secretary, and he yeah. said, "Yes, I'll do that." Why? I don't get it. Uh, attention, money. I guess. Like, how much did they? Maybe pay he thinks him? it's funny. I don't know. Um. Anyway, so. Uh, one big stupid thing that happened is remember I talked about that inside man that got that other chick. Yeah, he yeah. goes. His whole mission is actually not to get the money. No one cares about the money. Tanaka didn't want the money. They just wanted a head of one of the zombie alphas because cloning them and they can make armies of zombies or something. So they're in the like casino. Everyone else, but then him and the the person who's a coyote who like brings people in and out of Vegas, um, mm-hmm. they go outside, kill the alpha zombie, right? The pregnant one. He yeah. puts it in the back and they are like right where they were in the beginning. Once they first came into the uh, Vegas, mm-hmm. he could have left. There was nothing stopping him from walking out and leaving his mission. His thing was to get the zombie head. But instead of just going back out the way they came in, he's like, all right, time to go back to the casino and kill everyone and get in the helicopter that they were originally planning to escape on and leave that way. It makes no sense. He could have just left the same way that he came in. But you know why they didn't have him do that? Why? Because Snyder said, you know, it'd be cool if the zombie tiger mauled him. And so then that's what happens. He goes to the casino, betrays them. Comes back outside for no reason. He's supposed to be going up to the helicopter. Then comes back outside to get killed by the zombies. Hilarious. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> Brilliant filmmaking. So, filmmaking at its finest. Later on, the helicopter escape. And again, it's like there's some cool shots you got here, man. Where they're escaping and you see the nuke fly over. Which also, they moved up the nuke. It was supposed to be July 4th. <laughs> and then... There was debate over, <laughs> should we, that's kind of in bad taste. And the president, <laughs> the person who isn't named, but is clearly supposed to be Trump, is like, when you think about it, it's actually more patriotic <laughs> when we nuke all the zombies on the 4th of July. But anyway, he lost that debate, apparently, and they moved it up to July 3rd is when they will now nuke them. And everyone is in Vegas, and they're like, uh-oh, we gotta leave now. And so during the helicopter escape, which... Right beforehand, the alpha zombie who was mad about his pregnant wife or mate getting killed, he mm-hmm. runs up to the roof. Batista's whole, again, is so stupid. It, there's no time to it. Batista's daughter basically yeah. gets most people killed because she wants to find her friend because she used to work in the refugee camp. And there's this mm-hmm. person, Gita, who has kids. And she wanted to go into Vegas because she wanted to get some money she wanted to buy her way out of the camp for the kids so Gita gets lost in Vegas and that's Patisse's daughter's reason her name's Kate I think 
That's Kate's reason for wanting to go into Vegas. The teacher's already going in there for the money. And he's like, I can't let you come in here. It's too dangerous. And she's like, I'm going to do it anyway. So you have to let me do it. Because then you can protect me. And he's like, fine. But you cannot leave my sight. And you cannot go after Gita. Uh, and then mm-hmm. what does she do? She leaves the sight and goes after Correct. Gita. Ah, so see? See, I She does it. that. I could, I could write this movie. <laughs> for real. She goes after Gita, somehow finds her in the midst of like this massive Vegas hotel. But then they go up to the roof. Batista goes up to the roof. Everyone else is dead at this point. It's just them three. Uh, and the pilot, who's Tig Notaro. Um, and then they get in the helicopter and they're looking at each other like, wow, we did it. While Inuk is coming and the Alpha is on his way up. So they just sat around doing their like, wow, go us. We made it. So that the Alpha could jump up and get onto the helicopter. Yeah. So then they're flying away. The nuke comes. The Alpha is on the helicopter with them, fighting them. And then they, they crash because of the nuke blast hits them. And then uh, Batista got bit right before that happened, which I don't understand how. I mean, he could have just kicked him out of the out of the heli. But the helicopter goes down. And guess what happens? Gita. They don't even show her. They show Tignataru dead. Kate is miraculously fine. She goes to Batista, who's bit, and he's like crying because they were estranged and all that. So anyway, he's like, mm-hmm. I love you, blah, blah, blah. He gives her $20,000 or something that he had was able to pocket from the safe. Um, and is like, use this for Gita's kids. And we just don't see Gita. We don't know if she survived. And I'm assuming we don't. But even then, the whole point of the movie, like the motivation that Kate had, which ended up getting everyone else killed. I mean, not entirely. It was actually the inside man who got everyone else killed. But she certainly got Batista killed. Um, we just don't see whether Gita lived or not, which is baffling to me. The like core motivation for Kate, and we don't even see what happens. It was so stupid. And the and then the they had he did the like same thing with the Joker scene in Snyder Cut, where the movie just went on too long because what should be a post credit scene became the actual ending, and so one of the other dudes. His name is Ivanhoe, whose only character was he has a chainsaw, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a circular saw type deal. Um, mm-hmm. He was in the safe because the safe cracker dude pushed him in there because they're getting wrecked by. He tried to fist fight the alpha zombie, which made no sense. <laughs> um, but then so he pushes him into the safe. And I thought, okay, he's going to be in the safe. He survived the blast. He's going to happen to be bit and become the new zombie, right? That's how they'll continue. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, which would have made sense, they had him get out. So he did survive in the safe, but was able to get out somehow. Don't know. Like I would have thought people would have came in to the safe, opened it up, and there he is as a zombie. And then he bites them mm-hmm. and then the cycle repeats. No, somehow he gets out of the safe. Travels like six hours to civilization. He has the money, so he buys a private jet to go to Mexico. And then on the way there, he realizes that he's bit. Despite the fact that Batista, who was bit, bitten in the helicopter, he changed in like 10 minutes. Like, you, you hmm. turn fast. 
yet somehow Ivanhoe was like six or seven hours. Survive the blast. Well, because he also out, would have had to have gotten go to... bit before the save. Yeah. Um, so that's even more time because then the whole nuke happened, and then how long did it take to get out of the nuke? But he was in route I to mean... Mexico, and that happened. And then they didn't even show him like actually turn and kill the plane people. He just said he looked at the bite and said, "Oh no," <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, but there's one thing you're not considering is that people who just wield circular saws and try to fist fight, you know, the alpha, they're just built different, Ryan. That is they true. can handle those bites differently. They're just built different. You don't get somehow. It. You're the, not. You're not there Batista, yet. Who's a behemoth? He would never fist fight the alpha, though. You know, he's not that kind of. He's not built that way. Ivanhoe. He's built different. You're right. I don't know how I couldn't see yeah. that before. Come on, man. This this, this is writing one on one. So anyway, so, that was it. <laughs> you're rating. Uh, out of how many zombie tigers would you rate this movie? I'm going to give it a 1.5. Damn. It's so stupid. This is dumb. That is rough. That is a rough rating. I like Batista. I don't know why he took this film either. He's not even in it that much. Like He's sort of the anchor for it, but again, most of the plot is driven by Kate, and then it's a big cast of characters, so they try mm-hmm. to spread the love with them, but again, half of them, I'm like, I don't really care. And I knew they were going to die, but everyone died except for Kate, which is so stupid. Yeah, there's so much absurd in this movie that I think I will check it out. I think I will watch it, or at least skim through I it. I recommend it only because you need to see how stupid it is. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Now, for our next grab bag, grab bag review, I'm going to talk about The Mitchells versus The Machines, which is an animated movie that is on Netflix. And it is... Phenomenal. I'm so glad I get to talk about a positive film instead of a bad one. Because I like, I'm all about positivity. It stars Abby Jacobson, Danny McBride, Maya Rudolph, Eric Andre, Olivia Coleman, Fred Armisen, Beck Bennett, Chrissy Teigen, and John Legend. Huge cast of famous people. It is directed and written by Michael Rianda, who sort of based some of the characters on his family members, and is produced by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, and they're the team behind the Lego movies the Jump Street movies, and the Spider-Verse movies, which is a really big resume to throw at me, you know. And they have once again pulled off a great movie because it is fantastic. The basic premise, I won't spoil it because I want you to watch this without any spoilers, so I will just do the basic premise here. There is this family. They are the Mitchells, and they live in this world where the apple of the world has created a new technology that is the, basically these giant robots that are like manservants and the old technology, like the, the, that version Siri, who's basically voiced by Olivia Coleman, is jealous that they discarded her software and made a new version. And so she hijacks the robots and takes over the world and she enslaves all of mankind except for the Mitchells who are on the way they're on a cross-country road trip to drop off the daughter to her college. And so the whole sort of uh, emotional tie of the film, which was surprising because I didn't pick it up in the trailer, is the daughter's relationship with the father and their sort of like unwillingness to cooperate and their sort of different personalities because she's very like 
Gen Z. She's a film student, <laughs> Gen Z kind of like quirky person who makes weird videos. And he doesn't really get it. He's sort of like the rugged anti-technology woodsman who likes to carve stuff. And he doesn't understand, you know, quirky absurdism. And it's it's weird because they blend boomer humor with the Gen Z absurdism. Like there's all kinds of like weird stuff they do that's all kind of like film majory, like absurd, strange, colorful things like in Spider-Verse that's all over the place. And then every once in a while, there's just boomer humor where the dad's like, come on, guys, let's put away technology for five seconds. It's it's a very strange blend. And I think it's to appeal to everybody and to sort of define the characters well, which kind of works. It is a strange blend, though, but it is a funny movie. There are so many moments where I was laughing. There's great performances. It's funny animation. It is cool and colorful like Spider-Verse was, where it's not just like, a straight up animated movie they have fun sort of like they go crazy with the animation they add like things to it they do all kinds of like uh flourishes on the screen rather than just animating characters uh the story's fun it's not it's not the most well thought out story in terms of like the actual plot but the emotional tie between the daughter and the father is incredible it's very well written it's very well executed I was tearing up a little bit at the end. It's a it's a great movie. The animation is beautiful. Uh, the style it's very stylistic, which you know is what I'm always looking for in a movie is heavy stylism. I always love seeing that come out. It's just fun. It's just a fun family film. I highly recommend it. Everybody should see it. You should see it soon because I think you would love it, Ryan. You Please. love big colorful movies. You love Spider Verse. You love big, colorful movies where they just go crazy with the with the fun stuff, and you love family movies. You would love to watch this movie. It's such a good movie. Yeah, I mean, I saw. I remember it came up on the Netflix panels. Which, by the way, this is just a weird thing. But this is like the first time we talked about Netflix since our mm-hmm. relaunch, um, which I think is kind of funny. Um, but yeah. I remember seeing it, and I watched the trailer, and I. I could tell, I think, from the animation style that this was the Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I was like, oh, then I'm probably good. And then seeing the premise, and I was like, oh, it's going to be this heartwarming story of this family who doesn't really mesh well all the time, but then they're going to learn to really work as a cohesive unit. Um, mm-hmm. And in that way, sort of repair whatever strife or mishaps were going on between them. So I was like, oh, that'll be a really nice arc that they have um and then with the animation style honestly it looked over stimulating to be honest like mm-hmm. it was very intense in that trailer which is probably one of the things that put me off from it initially like i didn't want to dive right into it because of that um yeah and then because i also was like oh i sort of see where this film is going to end up going but you're saying that it delivers perfectly or near perfectly mm-hmm. in all those respects interesting what's interesting is that spider verse is a full 2d movie like it's completely just it's a two-dimensional film but this movie is it's three-dimensional animation at least it looks like it to me but with two-dimensional style so they're like taking these three dimensions and they're flattening it with like outlines like very strong outlines on the characters like you'd see in a 2d character and like action lines that you'd see in a 2d animation instead of like it's just a weird way to do it and i can see where some people could think that's strong but it does work when you actually watch the movie 
and I like it a lot. I could see what you're saying because I remember watching the trial and thinking this is a very strong way to approach this. I don't know if I'd like it. I don't know if this is my kind of movie. And then I ended up watching it because, I mean, I had a sunburn, <laughs> a really bad sunburn. And Alexa, I didn't have anything else to do, so we sat and we just watched uh, the Mitchells versus the Machine. And oh, it was such an enjoyable experience. So much fun, good times. I had a, I had a milkshake. I was hanging out with Alexa, watching a good movie. Even though I had a sunburn, it was still fun. It was a great, great day, great movie, great time. Highly recommend it. Go watch it as soon as you can, Ryan. You will love it. You will, I will love see. it. I will see. I'll maybe watch it with my mom for a family movie night at some point in the future. Oh, that'd be fun. She would love that. Nice. It's it's a good family friendly. Did you give it a out of five rating? Oof. I would give it four and a half. Olivia Coleman's out of five. <laughs> she's incredible in the movie, by the way. She's fantastic. She plays like the Siri AI kind of thing, and she's so funny. She's great, great in it. And Fred Armisen and Beck Bennett are probably the funniest parts, though, because early in the movie when the robots first attack, two of the robots like bump into each other and then they sort of short circuit and they no longer attack the family and they just go along with the family and do whatever they want. And they're like, they like do the function that the robots were built to do, which is act as servants. And it's Beck Bennett and Fred Armisen and they're hilarious. Uh, it's so funny. All right. Yep. I may end up watching it in the near future and I'll let you know what I think. Yes, please do. For our final grab bag review. I'm going to talk about Women in the Window, which you did not see. No. That I did. You did not go for the Amy Adams film? I wanted to see it because of how much I love Amy Adams. But when the reviews came out and they said it was bad, I was just so disappointed. Because the concept is, it sounds a lot like Rear Window. Yeah. And I Rear Window is one of my favorite movies. I love Rear Window. And if you do it wrong, if you do the Rear Window style wrong, it would just be so boring and i don't and they said it was bad and i don't want to watch a boring movie i hate movies that i don't think it's boring so if that's the thing that is putting that was my recommendation is that i was afraid it would be boring i wouldn't call it boring um and amy adams is good in this film so i mean those are two highlights i would suppose Mm -hmm. um but you're right it is it's trying to be a combination of rear window and i'm thinking of ending things so it's, mm. it does try to have this psychological thriller, horror. I don't, I mean, they try to lean into a lot. I don't know if it's entirely successful, but I agree. The premise was super interesting because yeah. the conceit for her residing, being confined to her apartment instead of being injured and wheelchair bound like Jimmy Stewart's character was in Rear Window, um, yeah. she is agoraphobic. So she's, wants to stay in her comfortable space, which is her house, doesn't want to go outside. Um, so that I thought was compelling because it gave sort of this clear internal arc that she could go through. Um, mm-hmm. And the other interesting part of the premise I thought was the relationship she had to the people who were getting murdered. So in Rear Window, um, Jimmy Stewart's character isn't like doesn't have a connection to the people that get murdered. There's a thematic connection, but there isn't like, he personally doesn't know them, doesn't interact with them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
So in this film, they sort of spice it up in a way that they come over to her house, like the son of the family that just moved in next door, and then the wife comes over, and then we see Gary Oldman plays the dad a couple times. Um, so Julianne Moore was the wife. I'm trying to remember her name, but I can't remember what it is. Um, Gary mm-hmm. Oldman's the dad, and then Fred Hetchinger is the teenage son that comes over. So we see her form relations, relationships with them, and the interesting one was with her and the son because she is a child psychologist and he he's like sort of weird um like he's not entirely socially adept Mm -hmm. but then he's also getting heavily implied that he's getting abused by the dad like the dad is messed up um and so she immediately is trying to be like hey you can reach out to me whenever like if there's anything you need i'm here um and she sort of tries to do the same thing when the mom slash wife comes over and she's briefly speaking about her um her deal with gary oldman's character but then changes the subject um and then a short time later she gets killed and amy adams sees it through the window and she's like oh this is terrible let me call the police um but because she's on pills and drinking a lot and there's a hallucinatory effect that's sort of the psychological part of it is we don't know what exactly she's seeing whether it's real or not so she basically gets gaslit by um partially the police and partially gary oldman because he's like Mm. my wife has never been to your house (laughs) my wife (laughs) and Aiden adams is like no she was (laughs) And he's like, no, no, no. And then the police are like, well, do you have any proof? And she's like, no. Um, so then, yeah, you see over time how, again, she's trying to fight for these pieces of proof that she did see the murder happen um, and did really interact with the wife before it happened. And then at every turn, because again, the hallucinations and then Gary Oldman doing stuff, it doesn't always work out. So she's continually trying to like fight against the other people's perceptions of her. Oh, she's just crazy. She imagined this. And she's mm-hmm. trying to be like, no, I, I did not. Um, they also had Wyatt Russell as her tenant. Tenant. Yes. Um, yes. Dude, the movie Tenant. Because <laughs> everyone calls it Tenant <laughs> at the time. So now it's got me mixed up. Um, so her tenant is Wyatt Russell, who recently played John Walker in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and Anthony Mackie is also in this, so that was pretty funny. Wow. Um, so he's also in there as like someone to give Amy Adams to talk to, um, and another reflection of whether or not she's being in her right mind and has things straight, like her timelines. So all those pieces feel like they should work, and they were for me in the beginning of it, but I feel like as it kept progressing and we got into the second half, it was not working as well for me. There are also some moments that are just really goofy, like the murder mm. scene itself. Um, <laughs> Julianne Moore just like runs back like she's being possessed, like her arms are flailing and all this because a knife, I imagine, got stuck into her. But it looks like someone just threw an axe from across the room and it hit her and then she's just thrown back from the porch. It looked really weird. Um, so there's some goofy moments that's goofy moments that 
took me out of it. And there are other things where they tried to be interesting with the way she wakes up. She like sees these old films. Like they literally had a rear window. That's like the first shot in the film. Um, the Tehu were like, guys, we get it. We know we are copying rear window. And they acknowledge it. <laughs> um, but yeah, they tried to do things like that to and spice it up, keep it interesting, keep us guessing. But it felt a gimmicky way to do that, to keep yeah. us on our toes and make us think we don't know what's happening, as opposed to an actually thought out and compelling way to create that same effect. So yeah. again, I like what they were trying to do with it. Amy Adams was good in it. The twist was okay. Like partially it doesn't entirely make sense. Um, but I still, again, like the thought of it, the idea of it, I could get behind, mm-hmm. but I don't think it truly uh, was executed well. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I guess, all right, but there's such, there is a better version of this film that could have existed, and I don't think it would have been that hard to make. So I don't know what happened. Um, but yeah, I will, I will give it probably a 2.5. Out of five. All right. Well, that's not. That's pretty bad. It is bad. Uh, I will check it out probably because the way you described it, it seems like an interesting watch for me. I like to see all these actors do what they can do, and I also kind of want to see. It's good to watch, like you know, people fumble the ball <laughs> artistically yeah. every once in a while, just to see, just to like, like learn, like what did they do wrong, what could have been improved. So I think I will. This is something that I could probably enjoy a little bit while also critiquing it and thinking about what went wrong in the process, what went wrong artistically and, and just kind of learn from that. So I will check out woman in the window. There's one more thing I want to mention. It's not something we're going to do a deep dive on, but it's something I watched during May. It is a mini series on HBO max that came out in late April and all throughout May. It's called mayor of East town. It is the Kate Winslet detective show that takes place in the, in the rural area, just outside of Philadelphia with a very specific accent and a very specific type of people. Um, I was not sold on it completely when I first started watching it, but the more you watch it, the more you get into it. As Detective Stories goes, I am highly critical because it is very hard to sort of create a really good detective mystery where you're guessing. Like, I think the best way to create a detective, a murder mystery specifically, is to give all of the clues immediately so that they, the, the person, whoever's reading it, whoever's watching it can solve the mystery on their own, but give it to them in a way that they can't do it on their own and they need you to do it for them. That was my biggest problem with this show is that the very finale, it didn't quite stick the landing for me because it's definitely like revealing things that we just did not know even slightly. So we're not really, cause like there's just no way we would have known that that was the solution until we got to that point. There's no way we could have guessed that. And I get that it's very tricky to really stick the landing on a detective mystery. It does it okay. What I really like about it is the character development and the acting. The way they interweave these characters is above par for a sort of detective mystery. It's it's sort of on par with um, Broadchurch. <laughs> Broad is on par because Broadchurch is probably the high standard for me when it comes to a murder mystery miniseries. That is definitely peak murder mystery miniseries and this almost gets to that level it just doesn't stick the landing quite well but it definitely develops the characters in a very strong way i gave it four and a half kate winslet's out of five 
It's fantastic I mean, yeah, in good. a lot of ways. I would highly recommend it. Yeah. So check it out if you can. It doesn't quite stick the landing, but there's plenty of episodes, plenty of moments that are shocking, surprising, interesting, good character development. It's a it's an overall good watch. So if you have HBO Max or you have HBO on Prime, check out Mayor of Easttown. All right. So that brings us to the movie of the week, which will be The Lives of Others from 2006. So run us through it real quick, Dylan. I'm throwing out another foreign film. I, w- I won't do it too often, but I think we could all do a little benefit from a, a foreign film every once in a while. This is a German film. It is starring Ulrich Mew, Martina Gedek, and Sebastian Cook, and it is directed and written by Florian Hankel von Dammersmark. Donner's nailed it, which is is my favorite name that has ever been created. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 2007. It came out in 2006. And basically the story is, it is the Cold War era, East Germany, this communist state. And Ulrich, Ulrich Mew is playing a intelligence operative who basically listens in on artists who are anti-communists. They like plant listening devices and he just listens in on them and then takes notes. And then he interrogates them and tortures them pretty much to get them to reveal that they're anti-communist so that the communist party can then execute them and all that, all that crazy stuff. But the best part about it is he finds this couple and I won't get too into it cause you should watch it, but he basically like falls in love with this couple as he's listening to them. Like he, he like, like loves these people as people and he thinks that they're good people and he doesn't want them to be harmed. And so he starts like sabotaging the, intelligence operation on this couple of artists this playwright and this actress and starts to like manipulate the situation from inside even though these people have never met him they have no idea who he is he just likes them as people as he's listening in on them and it's just beautiful it's beautiful the way it's told it's really insightful into what was happening in east germany in that communist area during that time uh it's really well documented it's really well done the production design is fantastic the costuming the acting everything is above par excellent incredible and i just i love the way it ends it's probably my favorite part that sounds the ending it's incredible and the end is probably top 10 endings to a movie of all time just the way it ends the last line i'm getting chills right now thinking (laughs) about it because it's just it's such a beautiful way to end that movie on that line that he says oh it's fantastic if you ever get a chance to watch the lives of others i don't think it's streaming anywhere i can check if you get a chance to watch it, if you can find a copy somewhere, buy it, watch it, love it, own it. Where did you see it in? I own a copy. Oh, really? Yeah, I found it was like $4 at a local bookstore, and I just snagged it right away because I wanted to watch it so bad. You need to send that over to me because that sounds beautiful. You, I want to I wanna see it. We'll have to come over and watch it with me. We can have a movie night with everybody. Did you cry at the end? I didn't cry, but many people will. Uh-huh. It is a it is a sad ending, but then there's like an epilogue part, and it just it makes me feel so good, just the way that ends. It is hauntingly beautiful. All right, that's all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at theboxofficeshow at gmail dot com. That's theboxofficeshow at gmail dot com. Our main title theme for the show is "Sundown" by Joseph McDade. 
Be sure to tune in next week. We're going to be discussing A Quiet Place 2. We're going to go to the theaters. We're going to watch it this weekend. And then we're going to have all kinds of thoughts for you about why it's good, why it might be bad. We have no idea. We'll let you know. Stay tuned.